Father, I pray that I would uh, decrease and that Christ would increase. I pray, Lord, that you would um, speak to us through your word today. Help us, give us ears to hear. Help us to understand that we may be conformed to the image of Christ. That now and ever we confess Christ, our hope in life and death. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Leviticus chapter 22. Um, we're picking up where we left off a few weeks ago in verse 17. So I'm going to read verses 17 to, to the end of the chapter, verse 33. So Leviticus 22, beginning in verse 17, says this. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel, and say to them, When any one of the house of Israel or any of the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering for any of their vows or a freewill offerings that they offer to the Lord, if it, is to be accepted, if, um, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or any itch or scabs you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. You may present a bull or lamb that has a part too long or too short for a freewill offering, but for a vow offering it cannot be accepted. Any animal that has its testicles bruised or crushed or torn or cut you shall not offer to the Lord. You shall, uh, you shall not do it within your land. Neither shall you offer as the bread of your God any such animals gotten from a foreigner, since there is a blemish in them, because of their mutilation they will not be accepted for you. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When an ox or sheep or goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day on it shall be acceptable as a food offering to the Lord. But you shall not kill an ox or a sheep and her young in one day. When, the sacrifice, when you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that it may be accepted. It shall not be eaten in, on the same day. You shall, not leave, you shall leave none of it until the morning. I am the Lord. And you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. According to uh, Westminster Seminary professor Michael Horton, uh, Westminster, California, um, the reformer John Calvin, he did not imagine that the New Testament gave us a, a precise liturgy or church order, but he was convinced that it does clearly give us clear guidelines for worship and church life. So, for example, from his study of the New Testament, Calvin believed, he, he believed that there are actually four church offices, pastors, teachers, whom he sometimes called doctors, like, like college professors, elders, and deacons. And by the way, we would say that there are simply two offices, elder and deacon, and that pastors or pastor teachers are elders. Well, from this New Testament concept... Calvin taught that pastors are, are trained 
They're examined and ordained to preach, to teach, and to minister, to administer the sacraments. They give their full time to the ministry of the word and to prayer. So over and against Roman Catholicism, the reformers taught that baptism, not ordination, makes a priest. Think the priesthood of all believers. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the apostle Peter said. Well, the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, that states that that all believers in Christ share in his priestly status. Therefore, there's no, there's no special class of people who mediate the, the knowledge, the presence, and, and the forgiveness of, of Christ to the rest of the believers as in the Levitical system. That's actually what Roman Catholicism teaches. Rather, all believers have the right and the authority to read, interpret, and apply the teachings of Scripture. So we could say that, that in their person... Church officers, they share with all the saints one Lord, one faith, one baptism. However, in their office, though, and I'm thinking uh, specifically of pastors here, one author said they're not mere facilitators or team leaders. Rather, they are Christ's ambassadors through whom he builds and extends his own kingdom. This is what the Apostle Paul was referring to in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, when he writes, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God, making his appeal through us, through the ordinary means of grace, through the preaching. We implore you, Paul continues, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In Calvin's words, Christ told the apostles that, quote, the ministers of the gospel are porters, so to speak, of the kingdom of heaven because they carry its keys and they are invested with the power of binding and loosing, which is ratified in heaven. And so we could say it like this, ministers of the gospel carry the authority of God's word with them and they exercise this ministerial authority, as Calvin says, by the doctrine of the gospel. In, in, in preaching the gospel and proclaiming the forgiveness of sins and administering the sacraments. In other words, the authority of pastors is found in God's word, not in the office, not in me. Again, John Calvin said this. He said, among us, should some ministers be found of no great learning, still none is admitted who is not at least tolerably apt to teach. <laughs> and thank God for that. Now, I'm saying all of that to say this. The work of a pastor is not the work of the Old Testament priest. In fact, at his absolute best, the Old Testament priest was just a shadow, just a, a type of the great high priest to come, Jesus Christ. Think of, think of the, the ascended Christ of, of Hebrews chapter 4. After he has ascended, passed through the heavens, since then we have a, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. The work of a, of a pastor, by its very definition, is shepherding. 
Pastors are, pastors are under shepherds for the good shepherd. Some have said that the work of a shepherd is to, to lead, feed, and protect, right? It's a ministry of word and prayer. Calvin said that pastors preach, teach, and administer the sacraments. There is more to it than that. I re recently read of an, an experienced um, and yet unnamed pastor. I don't know who this was that said this. But he once said with, with reference to shepherding the flock of God, he said, my assignment is to prepare the sheep for sacrifice. My assignment is to prepare the sheep for sacrifice. That's actually pretty good. Because Romans chapter 12, verse 1, tells us that the flock of God is to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Every priest of God, which is to say every Christian, is called to be devoted to a life of holiness and worship and sacrifice. Luke chapter 9 Verses 23 and 24 says this, and, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And Leviticus chapter 22 actually speaks of all of these issues. Here in this chapter, Israel's priests were here given the responsibility, especially in the, in the first half of the chapter, 21, all of chapter 21 and the first half of chapter 22. We looked at that a few weeks ago. But they are given the responsibility of ensuring that the, and he uses the phrase, bread of God, the sacrifices brought to God, is not defiled, either by their unclean hands, as we saw in the first half, or by unworthy offerings from the congregation. In other words, the sacrificial offerings were to be handled with holy hands and received from hearts humbled by God's sovereign, sanctifying, redemptive grace. The sacrifices were to be holy. So the contents of this chapter, it teaches us that if our worship if our worship would be acceptable to God, then it must be holy. In fact, if I was going to summarize these two chapters put together here, Leviticus 21 and 22, I would say it like this. The Lord requires that all who approach Him in worship come with holy hands and humble hearts. The Lord requires that all who would come to Him in worship, come with holy hands and humble hearts. As kind of an interesting note, one of the instructions that Paul gives to Timothy regarding men and women in worship actually addresses these very things. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, he writes this, and, and listen very carefully. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works, he says. 
Now, I hope you understand that those verses are not about outward appearances only. They were about, a, about hearts that are devoted to God. Holy hands and humble hearts. This is how faithful worshipers approach God. So how does this look for the Israelites? Well, these verses here, um, 17 to 33 of Leviticus 22, they, they lay out really three requirements for the people to be considered faithful worshipers, or, or really... Uh, two requirements and then the results, maybe we could say. Here, here they are, and then we'll go, we'll go through these. Acceptable sacrifices offered to God alone in obedience which leads to sanctification. That's the results. So acceptable sacrifices offered to God alone in obedience leading to sanctification. Now, in the previous section, I, I've referred to this, it was a few weeks ago, but it's chapter 21 and the first half of chapter 22. In that section, the Lord gave clear and specific instructions regarding the role of the priest's holiness in worship. And so the next logical set of laws for the people of Israel addresses the, the regular Israelites, the everyman Israelites. And, and remember, from a from a big picture viewpoint, here's what's happening, okay? God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, has called a people for his own possession. He has promised them land, seed, and blessing. And he has revealed to his people his own name, his covenant name, Yahweh. And not only has he made this covenant promise of land into which he's preparing to lead them, seed and blessing, but he's also promised this. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the fact remains that this, this great nation is steeped in sin. And therefore, they are unable to approach the holy God. They cannot enter into his holy places. And so they need someone to go for them. They need an intermediary. They need an intercessor. And this is to be the role of the priests. But the problem that quickly develops, and we've seen this, the problem that quickly develops is that the priests still sin as well. Sometimes, grievously. We read in chapter 10 uh, about the strange fire, right? Remember that? Consider the famous story of the priest Eli and his sons. They're described in 1 Samuel chapter 2 like this, Eli and his sons. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Eli was the priest who probably by that time had actually retired. Remember, they were supposed to retire at 50. And his sons were taking his place. But they were worthless men who did not know the Lord. A little bit later in 1 Samuel 2, it continues, Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil doings from all these people. 
No, my sons, it is no, there is, it is no good report that I hear among the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So these, these intercessors, these priests, they were mere shadows of the true high priest to come. We're going to come to understand this. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So does this make, then, the Old Testament obsolete, as some Christians actually believe? Does this make the Old Testament just obsolete? Is it worthwhile to preach through books of the Old Testament, even the law? Of course, because without the Old Testament, the new actually makes very little sense. See, in order to understand holiness in general and faithfulness in worship in particular, we need to understand God's requirements in the law. Now, in chapters 21 and 22, God repeatedly makes the statement, I am the Lord or I am Yahweh. He says this over and over in these two chapters. So not only does that link these two chapters together, it actually is significant because this name, this name is the name that is above all names. Yahweh is all-encompassing. Yahweh is self-sufficient. He is infinite and sovereign, and he has called us to bow down and worship at his name. And he requires the Israelites to bring acceptable sacrifices. Acceptable sacrifices. So the, the central theme of this chapter uh, really concerns the, the acceptable offerings that, the, uh, that God's people were to bring. And you know by now that that's actually one of the running themes throughout the book of Leviticus. In fact, back in chapter 9, um, I use that actually as the sermon title, Acceptable Worship. But there in chapter 9, the offerings were brought by Aaron uh, for the inauguration of the tabernacle and the priesthood, whereas here, the Lord is actually going back to the beginning, back to the basics. So notice who he addresses. Look at verses 17 and 18. <coughs> and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering for any of their vows or freewill offerings that they offer to the Lord. Now stop there. God tells Moses, he's the prophet, to tell Aaron, the chief priest, to tell the people of Israel when anyone any one of the children of Israel or any sojourner traveling through the land, when anyone, anyone. This is actually a, a callback to the first several chapters of Leviticus where God lays out all the laws regarding the offerings, the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, the peace offerings, the sin offerings, the guilt offerings. And he's making it plain that he was to receive the first and the best from their flocks and their farms, right? 
See, if the people, if the people genuinely acknowledge that because, because Yahweh is Lord, in fact, we could say Lord of Lords, then nothing short of reverence and homage and devotion is due to him. And if they truly believed that, if they truly believed that Yahweh is the Lord of Lords, then their devotion would be expressed through the acceptable gifts that they would bring. Think of it like this. Have any of you wives um, ever received a Christmas or a birthday gift from your husband that was actually something he wanted? Like, honey, I got you this nice new big screen TV or this table saw that I'm going to make really nice things for you on. Or have you ever received a gift that was clearly an afterthought? When we first moved to Illinois, um, 2007, I think it was. No, 2000, I don't remember. Long time ago. We first moved to Illinois. A few people from the church up there gave us some groceries. We were just moving into our house. We were moving from Xenia up to northern Illinois, so it was 400 miles or so. They gave us some groceries, but someone in the group had clearly, they'd clearly just cleaned out their cabinets because a bunch of the food was expired. Um, it, maybe there's a Stites up there too, I don't know, but it, it's like they were saying as an appreciation for keeping watch over our souls as those who will give an account, please accept these three cans of pumpkin pie filling best used by May 2005. <laughs> now, we, we weren't really offended. Um, it was kind of funny, actually. But sometimes, sometimes that's how we approach the Lord. So here's my, here's my thesis statement for this section. Here's the, sort of the big idea of what we're trying to look at here, what we're trying to see. Faithful worshipers approach God with acceptable sacrifices. Faithful worshipers approach God with acceptable sacrifices. Now, it's helpful to remember that these animals that we're talking about here, um, they were seen as belonging in the category of the, the holy things of the Lord, rather than being just merely animals, okay? And so, for example, all of the people of Israel, as they wandered through the wilderness, they lived in tents. They were common tents. The tabernacle was also a tent, but it was not a common tent. Tent. It was the holy dwelling place of the Lord. Do you see the difference? The same could be said for uh, the various pieces of, of furniture in the tabernacle. So they might have their own, um, their own lampstands or their own tables that they used in their, in their common tents, in their own homes. But those in the tabernacle, those pieces of furniture in the tabernacle belonged in the category of the holy things of the Lord. And the same is true for these animals. And so as a result, we can kind of, we can kind of divide this section here. It's really down through verse um, 28, 26, I guess. We can divide this section here into two, two headings. We safeguard the sacrifice and safeguarding the animals. So safeguarding the sacrifice. In verses 17 to 20, 
The law is addressing burnt offerings, which were brought either freely as an act of thanksgiving and and worship, or in fulfillment of a vow. In either case, they were to bring sacrifices that were without blemish. And, And let me remind you, this is actually not new instruction for them. In fact, all the way back in chapter 1, verse 3, we read this. This is verse 3 of chapter 1 of Leviticus. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. That's, that's the third verse of the book. So this is, a, this is a common sentiment throughout the law here so that the people would be without excuse, right? Um, listen to many generations later, uh, at the end of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. God is speaking through the prophet Malachi, and he says this, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? So even with all of the repetition throughout the book of Leviticus, throughout the law, even with all of the repetition, the people of Israel still brought blind animals and then asked the Lord, what did we do wrong? Now zoom out and ask this question then for us. Why is there so much repetition for the laws of God? Why is there so much repetition? Could it be that we regularly miss God's clear instruction? Could it be that we regularly disregard God's clear instruction? So so men, how many of you take these verses seriously? But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Do we, take those, do we take those things seriously? How many times are Christians in the New Testament commanded to, to flee such things like that, to run from them? And yet, how often do we really? Well, <clears throat> from the burnt offerings, the law then proceeds to the peace offerings, which, if you remember, were to be, to be offered following all of the other offerings after an atonement had been made. These are the offerings that were brought as a, as a sign of, of being in fellowship with the Lord, peace with God. And with the exception of the, the free will offerings that it mentions there in verse 23, 
There's a list here of a dozen or so specific defects in the animals and the offerings that were prohibited. And that list of defects, it actually should remind us of the list of blemishes that disqualified the priests from the previous section. And the point of this is that both the priests and the sacrifices had to be acceptable in order to enter into God's presence. Both the priest and the sacrifice had to be perfect. So in order to make atonement, or to to offer praise to the holy God who is perfect and, and blameless. Both the intercessor and the sacrifice had to also be as perfect and blameless as possible. Now think there about the application for New Testament Christians. Usually when we think of sacrificial offerings, we think of the offering plate. That is certainly part of it. But let's not jump there. We need to understand what makes our offerings acceptable. Do you see Christ in this for us? Can you see the shadow of Jesus Christ in this? Both the priest and the sacrifice had to be spotless. They had to be perfect. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. As John the Baptist proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the sacrificial system is now fulfilled. It's over. Christ has fulfilled the law. Some people actually believe that the sacrificial system is going to make a comeback. It's not. There's no need. We don't need the shadow. We have the reality. We have Jesus Christ. And so let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, this this emphasis of acceptable worship is clearly reiterated throughout the New Testament, especially by Jesus Christ himself in 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 the Gospels. But it's most clearly seen in his fulfillment of the law, his fulfillment of all of the shadows and types. Everything is building up and pointing at Jesus Christ. That's why John the Baptist can make sense when he proclaims of a man walking on the road, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That statement makes no sense without understanding all of this in the Old Testament. An innocent, pure, spotless sacrifice had to be offered for guilty, impure, diseased sinners. But God, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. By grace, you have been saved. Now the second safeguard there, um, the safeguard for the animals, it it has both... This is kind of brief. It has really practical reasons as well as it acts to protect against cruelty and brutality. We could almost call it a 
could almost call it a humanitarian safeguard. Look at verses 26 to 28. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, when an ox or sheep or goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother. And from the eighth day on, it shall be acceptable as a food offering to the Lord. But you shall not kill an ox or a sheep and her young in one day. So let's start here with kind of the second reason, as a protection against cruelty and brutality. Keep in mind that the Israelites, they were entering a land that was populated by violent pagan people who were wallowing in a culture of death and destruction. Many of them sacrificed their own children to the, to the god Molech, to Satan himself. And while God has established um, a sacrificial system for Israel, a, a bloody system for Israel, while he has established this sacrificial system because the wages of sin is death, yet he's not calling his people to be brutal. In fact, that description of being, being brutal is used throughout the Bible for violent unbelievers. Ezekiel 21 verse 31 says this, And I will pour out my indignation upon you. I will blow upon you with the fire of my wrath, and I will deliver you into the hands of brutish men skillful to destroy. Or 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying his power, avoid such people. Even in their, even in their sacrificing of animals, which was a difficult and bloody task, even in their sacrificing of animals, the people of Israel were not to be brutal savages like the people of Canaan. But there were practical reasons here as well. Um, the people would be tempted to offer newborn animals before they required much attention. And they ran the risk of bringing animals with blemishes that were not evident yet, like blind animals that he condemns them for in Malachi. Um, and then there was also the issue of possibly depleting their own herds. And so no mother and young were to be sacrificed on the same day. This would especially be an issue if that, was, if that one mother was all you had. Lord, I give it all to you. And then next week you got nothing, <laughs> but you, you still got to bring a sacrifice because this repeats itself over and over. So what we understand about the Lord in this is that he calls for generosity, but not foolishness. Paul addresses this in 2 Corinthians when he says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This is always about the heart. These are the things that make up acceptable sacrifices. Faithful worshipers approach God with acceptable sacrifices. And they also must be offered to God alone. Offered to God alone. Pick it up at verse 29. Uh, 29 and 30 says this. 
And when you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day. You shall leave none of it until morning. I am the Lord. So, so this is, I guess, thesis number two. Faithful worshipers ensure that spiritual service is offered to God alone. Faithful worshipers ensure that spiritual service, and service is often a synonym for worship, is offered to God alone. So as these worshipers brought their sacrifices, they were to be sure that they were consumed at the tabernacle. See, the the communal meal, the meal of covenant communion, it wasn't to be treated as a common meal. Now, I'm going to rant for just a moment. Um, I'm going to make a, a jump into the New Testament here because the idea is the same. This is why This is why things like drive-through communion are so blasphemous to God. You should not be able to go to White Castle and without getting out of your car, get a bunch of nasty, greasy sliders that are called that for a reason, then drive over to the local church in the box and get your Lord's Supper through a speaker and eat it by yourself while listening to Jack FM. You shouldn't be able to do that. Those things are not the same. See, because Yahweh is their gracious king. He delights to show his people favor. He delights to show his people grace. And yet because he is king, we must, his people must come to him on his terms, not their own. They must only bring the sacrifices he approves in the way that he allows and so to bring, to bring it back around to this, this is what Jesus did for us. Two times, two times in the New Testament, the Father says, he proclaims uh, miraculously, a voice comes from heaven and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He said this at his baptism and at his transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He was was accepting his sacrifice. He is the only, in fact, acceptable sacrifice. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of God. Of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He is the only acceptable sacrifice. That brings us to the final um, thesis. Faithful worshipers comply with God's requirements, which leads to their sanctification. Faithful worshipers comply with God's requirements, which leads to their sanctification. Obedience leads to sanctification. Look, verse 31. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh. And you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, he says. This final section, it calls here for obedience, but not just simply because I said so, although 
coming from God Almighty, that would be enough, right? Because I said so. Rather, Yahweh here describes himself as the sanctifier. He uses that word. And then he uses the language of redemption. Verse 33 again. I'm the, uh, the end of verse 32. I'm the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I'm your redeemer. I'm your sanctifier and redeemer. These final verses are saying this. The faith of Israel the centerpiece of all of their religious customs, all of, the, all of the religious practices. It's not in themselves. It's not in their obedience to those things. It's not in, this is what the Pharisees thought. If we do all of these things, God will accept us, and we're going to force everybody else to do them too. The centerpiece of all of their religious customs, all of their practices, is the person and work of Yahweh. They're God. So can you make the connection for us? It's the same. It's the same thing. Jesus is God, the Son of Man. Our faith, all of our religious customs, all of our practices that we do week after week are centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it must be so. It's not about me. It's not about you. It is about Jesus Christ. He must be central to all that we do. The Lord requires that all who approach him in worship come with holy hands and humbled hearts, and Jesus Christ did that for us. That's why we can approach him, because of who Jesus is and what he has done, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Oh, Father, it is our desire that all that we do would be centered on Jesus Christ. That we would, as Acts 2.42, devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, that we would devote ourselves to the word of God, to to the fellowship of the saints, to the breaking of bread, to the prayers to our God, that all would be focused on Jesus Christ. And so, Father, as we approach um, the supper this morning, I pray that we would come with holy hands and humble hearts, knowing that it is only through Jesus Christ that we are invited to eat, to drink, and so proclaim the death of Christ. So proclaim, even with John the Baptist, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, it is our prayer that our worship would be acceptable in your sight, that it would rise as a pleasant aroma, that you would transform us into the holiness that we are called to be, the holiness of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.